0: Halloween night, a small American town.
1: Michael? Halloween. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil.
2: I think he'll come back. Halloween, the night he came home. Thank you. business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. Today, we are taking classic cinema to a later year than we normally do. So we thank you for being here. I am Jerea Clark, and I am joined with two fabulous ladies who have very different opinions about this movie. I'm Kimberly Pierce.
0: I'm Samantha Ellis.
2: That is right. They are here to talk with me about John Carpenter's Halloween from 1978. Again, we don't go this late into the 70s that frequently on the show. And I don't think Samantha Time Traveler Ellis ever has. We have real excitement. Normally when people have difficulties with films in the 70s, it's because they're too old. But not for our Samantha. It is a much too modern film
1: for her. We're breaking um, new ground here on To really Business, is. everyone. I
0: know. I'm used to the Janet Lees and the Tony Curtises, not the Jamie Lee Curtises,
1: (laughs) not their (laughs) offspring, not their offspring.
0: Exactly. Threw me for a loop.
2: We're very proud of her. You know, when you time travel like Samantha does, there's the worry of what pathogens are you going to run into? Is the air going to be different? So, like, we're we're just thrilled she even took this trip into the late '70s with us. Not to mention, she took it for a horror film and as anyone who knows us knows, she's a lover, not a fighter, so this is a different genre as well, but thankfully, I'll say I love this film, have loved it for a very long time. It's a building block of anyone who is really into genre films. You can see so many tropes and conventions and framing devices and character setups in this that influence film for years to come, including right now, so yes, Halloween. 1978. I would love to hear everyone's background with it. Samantha's background with it being very recent. Samantha, when did you first see this movie?
0: About 10 o'clock this morning. (laughs) I will say this is one of the movies that has been on my list. I would be lying if I said that it wasn't. Surprisingly enough, I do love horror. It's very difficult for me to find a horror that I really go over the moon for, but it's definitely possible. My sister, I think I mentioned in the last episode, my sister made a list of like 150 horror movies that she wants to watch this season. And this was one of them. She hadn't seen it either. But I don't know. Usually my wheelhouse was, as far as horror goes, are movies like they showed on TCM the other day, all of the pre-code Fay Ray movies. Like Mystery of the Wax Museum and King Kong and Dr. X and all of that. And I love The Haunting, Rosemary's Baby for a couple of more modern, <laughs> I use air quotes <laughs> when I say that, movies. But this is definitely what I wanted to cross off. I will also say I absolutely love the original Saw and the original Nightmare on Elm Street. If you want a couple of surprises... From me today.
2: (laughs) My eyes just bugged out of my head like bug bunnies.
0: (laughs) Like, yeah. I love both of those films and I love crime in general. So I was hoping, keyword there is hoping to add this to my list of horror movies that I really like, but I will get more into my thoughts on it later.
2: Well, we're definitely going to make some kind of commemorative poster or mug that says, I really like crime in general samantha ellis because that is a quote to live by
0: the exact thing you want to hear from someone who just watched halloween for the first time i really like crime in general big
2: fan
1: of crime you've heard of crime i love it i love crime i want that on a coffee mug like stat kimberly what about you for those who have read the website i freely admit i am very weak on slasher i tend to stay away from it However, this is one that kind of snakes around that. And it's definitely one of my favorites in terms of horror and especially later horror. Most of my comfort zone is what we talked about last episode. The Universal stuff, the 40s and 50s, William Castle, I love. There are movies I find of William Castle that terrified me when I was younger. And this is one that it took a long time for me to get to. I I don't think I actually watched it until film school. But I fell in love with this movie when I saw it. And I will admit I have not dove into, I think I've seen the first one, the second one, and maybe the 10th one, whatever the one before this last one was. So I'm very weak on the mythology of it. But this movie, to me, you can see the roots of as we've already discussed and we'll get into. We can see roots of where horse swung. We can see how time is changing. And it's one of those films where the low budget nature of it, but it seems to me like a labor of love. And to me, it's really separates it from the kind of Uber franchise that it turned into. And this is definitely a fun and I'm glad we're discussing it this week.
2: I am as well. You didn't let me know what you thought on crime in general. As but- the noir fan, I love crime. Okay, I figured. I figured. I, I, lo- I was just about to say... There's not a lot of crime in Halloween, other than all the murdering and some light b and But other than that, you know, real crime-free romp, as they say.
1: Before we get into it, here's a short little ad for our Patreon. If you're a fan of old Hollywood, classic entertainment, and the joy of pop culture history in all its forms, please subscribe to our channels, our Patreon website at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, as well as our Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, our YouTube channel and our Instagram channel. Help us out. We're looking to get 300 subscribers on our Patreon so we can start a new ambitious series examining TCM's 52 must-see movies and why they matter. Now, back to the show. No, if for anyone not familiar
2: with this film, and despite the decades they've had to take it in, this is, uh, of course, the birthplace, the origin story of Michael Myers. The movie begins, we see a, of course, like a beautiful topless girl, who is meant to be looking after her younger brother, but is instead flirting and engaging with her boyfriend. It's Halloween. Oh, I guess that goes without saying, you guys. It's Halloween. The girl gets stabbed. It's horrifying. You're watching this whole thing through creepy eyes. You don't know what's going on. And then, you know, the reveal in the sort of cold open is, oh, the stabber is her like six-year-old little brother, who is Michael Myers. And then we jump to many years later, And Donald Pleasance, whose appearance here will confound Samantha till her dying days, shows up as Dr. Loomis. And, you know, we hear that Michael Myers is a true sociopath. He's without a soul. He's a remorseless killer. And there's something about this that's really interesting to me, again, of how it flows into later, so many later films that pick up on this. But there's this central conceit in Halloween Where the filmmakers, they were tying it back to, and I'm not going to say this correctly, but I think it's the Celtic tradition of Samhain,
1: S-A-M-H-A-I-N. I've heard Samhain, but I think that's coming from a Supernatural episode, so I couldn't speak to the accuracy. Sure, we'll
2: say that word. And please give us a little leniency, but there is something different here because you're getting what they're choosing to tell you about Michael Myers, other than he's a sociopath and this concept of evil. You get into things that are a little more nuanced and the idea of having villains who are purely evil is actually something that's sort of shied away from in both contemporary and in classic, because there's more nuance, right? If you're giving a, oh, something happened when they were young. oh something. And in Halloween, it's a unique villain setup because there's no explanation for why Michael Myers is like he is. He just is a man who's had a bloodlust and no respect for life since a very young age. And then you also end up at the end with a slight supernatural element. But there are many times with the blows that this man takes to his body he should be dead many times over. So there is this like, is this a creature? So I'd love to talk first before we get into the machinations of the film and the parts that maybe people are more familiar with. I like to reverse engineer it, but I'd love to hear what you guys think of Michael Myers as a villain and as the bad guy, because I've always found there's always this relentless killer. Well, not always, but in many horrors, But with this, because you do get his origin story, it's the first thing you see, which is a really unique way in. And it makes it such a different way to look at what Michael Myers is doing, because you're like, oh, I guess he sort of revisits Halloween. He's going back to his childhood home. He's punishing girls who are supposed to be babysitting. But those are not like founding, do you know what I mean? He wasn't hurt by his sister. He hurt his sister. So what are your thoughts on Michael Myers as a villain?
1: It's such a fascinating way to start out, especially, I mean, you have that lengthy, cold open, What single shot, right? Coming specifically from Michael's perspective, you see the holes in the mask that he puts on. You can hear the breathing. So you're quite literally sitting in Michael's shoes as he does this. And like you said, it stems from, I don't even think they necessarily say she's babysitting. She goes, oh, Michael's around here somewhere. He comes home in his costume. You can kind of assume he's probably out trick-or-treating. But it's a hatred of teenagers, I'll say it as it's depicted in the film, who enjoy having sex. And... The only thing from if we take into account Loomis, kind of the treatment of Michael throughout, because there's absolutely no attempt to humanize him. The only time we see it, and it did affect me a little bit on this most recent watch through, I think I've seen this probably four times, that shot as the kind of the cold open comes out, you pan back and you see six-year-old Michael standing there in the front yard with the you know, the bloody knife in his hand. And you look at that kid. I think it's supposed to play off as cold. But then I think at least in my reaction, it's like, oh, there's some, you know, what's going on? You know, what's going on with that? To me, that's a slight attempt to humanize it, but ultimately he's a kid. But then throughout the rest of the film, it was fascinating me to think of last night. If we do the math in our head, Michael Myers in the first film is 20 years old, 21 years old. And after that, you never see his face for a full shot until what the very end. And it's really only briefly, it's only through that mask. So you're through his perspective, but there's no sense of humanity, individuality, thought, feeling. He's a machine. He's a killing machine with some, like you said, paranormal tendencies. I would completely agree. He's not human. He's a killer.
0: Yeah, I had nothing but questions when it came to his background and everything. My first question being, was child psychology not a thing back then? That was my big question. I can't wrap my head around or really believe. I mean, I don't know a whole lot about the justice system, but I can't believe that they would just lock up a six year old, even for doing something like that. It seems impossible to try him as an adult at six years old. I don't think you could make the case, even if it was a more horrific crime. I think you could even angle it on it was Halloween, he found a knife. He thought in his six-year-old little body, hey, I see this in movies, stabs his sister. Maybe that was it. And maybe his time in this sanitarium where his parents are never seen or heard from really conditioned him to be this heartless killer. I think that's a very strong possibility and one that I like to latch on to because I see the best in people.
2: I am a big fan of Samantha wanting justice for Michael Myers. (laughs) Like, think of all the other Michael Myers out there. I agree with you. To me, there's the implication, because we have Dr. Loomis as our de facto kind of audience surrogate. Mm -hmm. He's giving us the background as we go and walking us through things. He's a very unexpected hero in a movie. It's just this old man. But we have him and he's here. To me, because it is his psychiatrist, whatever he is, the implication was always, oh, Michael was through whatever kind of court system he went, he was put into the sanitarium because they deemed him mentally ill, continually representing potential for violence, whatever it was. And then in his treatment of him, Loomis came to these conclusions of, oh, you're not something I can help. You are soulless and a total killer. There's no. And that's redeeming why. This. But one thing that's really interesting, and I haven't seen this version, but it took them a few years, but they ended up selling a TV version of the film. And John Carpenter, the director, had to shoot more footage to make it fit the full two-hour TV block. So while they were filming the second movie, he shot additional footage and inserted it into the first one. And the majority of that footage, well, obviously, because he had access to Donald Pleasant. So that was part of it. But a lot of it was about him interacting with Michael and being. But one of the things that I found interesting that ties into Samantha's thought is that there's apparently a line in that where when Michael's still a young boy, Loomis says something to him like, oh, they think you're just a, I know the truth. I know you're evil. To him, there's some inherent evil he is able to diagnose. And I don't know where he got his training. So maybe he did learn that. You know, maybe we're just lacking that, was that my ability. That exact yeah. question.
0: I am on the exact same wavelength as you with this, Drea. I, number one, how can you fully diagnose a six-year-old as evil? That makes no sense to me. And I'm asking that as a genuine question. And two, we don't see any background to Dr. Loomis. We never get to find out for ourselves whether he is a particularly trustworthy or sympathetic person. For all we know, this Um, is just his opinion.
2: He's an old white man. Of course he's a
0: sympathetic character. (laughs)
1: Hello. No, I never mind he played Blofeld. (laughs) Yeah,
0: right. It's very possible th- that he made the decision for himself that this little boy, this little six-year-old is evil and just latched onto that for his entire upbringing and made no effort to try to humanize him. I think that's possible. I think it's possible,
2: but it is one of the reasons that I brought up the concept of Samhain, or however you do say it, because that as the root of what we now know as Halloween and the idea of both spirits in the spirit realm, but also the presence of evil, the concept there and the villain that they were trying to make was something that was pure evil. That was not even black or That was not had shades of gray. That was not, Oh, this could be explained in some sort of way. Loomis's description, what we get of this, I looked in his eyes. It was like just an intrinsic knowledge he had above and beyond his training of looking at this boy seeing in his eye. And so to me, it's that idea of at that point, he turns from being a human into like a creature. And that's supported by the end of, oh, well, he can't be killed. So there is clearly something more than human about him. And if
1: the more than human is just pure evil, then that's kind of what we're getting at. It's funny that we're getting to this point. I was looking at reviews for the film this morning, And one of the first one I clicked on, and I do apologize, I do not know which paper this was. One of the early period reviews for it goes, well, if you have questions, don't ask the screenwriters. They don't know either.
2: (laughs) Rude. This was co-written by John Carpenter and his girlfriend at the time, Deborah Deborah Hill. She also was a producer on it. And I think too, that for them- Because a lot of horror films, you see that there's so many horror films that I watch. I'm like, you're spending way too much time trying to explain this, especially when it's a third act exposition of like, shut up. I didn't come to see this movie called like Slasher Kills Some Guts so that you could tell me why the slasher loves killing some guts. By the way, that's not a real movie. So don't look it up. I'm sorry I teased everyone with this fake movie. But I think that for them, and they were also approached, this was a movie that the primary producer and financier got excited by Carpenter's assault on pre Secret* team. They wanted to do a horror film and they had this concept of someone stalking and killing babysitters because hot, just kidding, that's not, disgusting, but they wanted something that had like the cultural impact of the exorcist. They may have been, but certainly John Carpenter was inspired by Bob Clark's Black Christmas, which had come out in 74. So, you know, there were threads of things that they were pulling from, and then they were just putting them together in a way that felt like the most fun and the most unique to them, which is interesting because if you watch it now, and if you've watched a lot of things, you're like, this is not particularly unique because of the, you know, scope of time and the films that did lift these things. But I think there's something about the overall shape of this story. And how insular it is. And there's also such a strong, strong thing. Carpenter was really excited about making a haunted house movie. And he made a haunted house movie that's kind of a haunted neighborhood. And you do get such a great sense of place. Like this town, Haddonfield, oh, you have the kids wandering around, you see them during school, you get some daylight hours. It's not all just that night, you know. And these girls have these interactions and friendships with themselves. I really appreciated that. And maybe that's credited, you know, Deborah Hill wrote, I think, most of the dialogue for all of the women, if not. And I always liked the energy of the friendship of these girls. And as much as it set up and opened a door for later on, a lot of slasher films to just be boob spectacular for no reason. This one to me felt very, yeah, a lot of teenage girls are sex positive. They were in the seventies they are now. And that's just how it is. And like the world criticizes them for that. So I guess our hero will kill them too. What did you guys think of the female characters in this both Laurie
1: Strode, our hero, and then her pack of friends and how they were treated in this. What'd you think of them? That's a very interesting dynamic. And there's been so much that's written about the concept of the final girl and Lori is the final girl. We find out that Lori's, you know, she doesn't date. She Boys don't like her. She says, I'm too smart. But these popular girls, they're friends. Lori gets in the car, they smoke a joint to, uh, you know, don't fear the reaper. It's as grounded and as human, I would say, a female interactions is really I can think of in slasher movies because it's been taken so far into left field in the following 20 years. We've seen, you know, how many Halloweens, how many Friday the 13th, how many Nightmare on Elm Streets, and they've become parodies of themselves so quickly. But you can see the roots here in a more new Hollywood, a more independent cinema, because there's a very real eye for. The characters here, sure, there's boobs. At a few points, I was watching it going, wow, these are nicely developed girls for being, you know, 15, 16 years old. They're very womanly, but they- Uh, Half of them are actually like married (laughs) and- yeah, there. but it was a very young crew on as a whole, because I think I read Carpenter was 30, which it's like, it's like, oh, my God, how young Deborah Hill was in her 20s. Jamie Lee Curtis was what pushing 20 and they inject some real character in there. And it's, I think and that's part of the reason it's one of my favorite of the slasher, because it's a haunted house film. There's characters. It's more than just senseless violence, as we'll talk about. There's not a heck of a lot of violence in this and certainly not a lot of gore for something that's a quote unquote slasher film.
0: That was definitely something that I noticed, too. I would say, as I mentioned to you guys before we started recording, this movie to me was surprisingly tame considering how popular it is. I think of something I haven't seen it yet. It's actually on my list, as shocking as it is. I really want to see the original Last House on the left, and I think that that, by comparison, is a lot gorier, probably. And it was made around the same time. So just to compare in history, it's not like they couldn't make a gory film if they wanted to. So this is surprisingly tame. But as far as the women go in this movie, I did read one really interesting thing. I read that it wasn't Carpenter's intention to have the final girl be the purest of all of the women in this film. It was just, according to him, she survived because she was just more alert. Her mind wasn't preoccupied with boys and having sex. But I do think that something could be said about he probably inherently, just because of how horror has developed as a genre, put that in there. Maybe he wasn't aware of it, but I think, that's just kind of how it's developed as horror films go. The blonde hooking up with the jock are always the first to go right in the middle of having sex. The anyone of color does not last until the end. And the last one or two people are the toast white, brunette kind of smart people. It's
2: interesting because his explanation that he wasn't intending to do it that way is... The intent to do it that way. Like the, I, the concept of, oh, I only had the girls killed who were having sex because they were distracted by having sex is okay. You're condemning them then. You can either be smart and aware of your surroundings or you can be into your boyfriend. You cannot be both. As a one off, if I watch this out of context of the rest of the world that I live in or the movies I've subsequently seen, I could say, oh, I just wasn't thinking about that. And that's what worked best for the story. But because we do live in the world and we see how women are treated and it's a really interesting thing, too, because it's never the sense that the guys are punished for the same reason. It's more that they're just in the way of trying to get to the girls who need to be punished. Some of the best kills are the boyfriend. I love the boyfriend that gets like stabbed against the wall. And then, like, proceeds the creepy scene. The idea of Michael Myers wearing a mask and then wearing a sheet to be a ghost is hilarious to me. Like, one of the funniest things. It's so funny. It's genuinely nice and scary. And that that girl isn't scared, I really appreciate because, again, it does give like, These are not wallflower, weak will, whatever, but the guys are not treated with the same sort of punishment angle to me anyway. And then you get the Lori and the idea of the saving grace of her not having a boyfriend or not being as interested in that moment, helping her along. He and Deborah Hill were trying to credit this heroine with you know like a lot of it is luck but a lot of it is you know she gets in some good licks again if michael myers wasn't some slow-key supernatural can't be killed she would have done some real damage to him and she is trying to do her best and she's also i think tied into all of this the one who is most aware of where the kids that she's taking care Mm -hmm. of are they are constantly sort of in danger to the best of her knowledge there is in as much danger as she is We don't know that. We don't know if Michael Myers would actually care, notice, whatever the kids, she is continually sort of telling them where to go, moving them along, hiding them and making them a center of what she's doing, which is
1: of course the reverse of what we saw his sister doing at the very beginning. So I think there's a neatness to that tie in. Ultimately, Lori's saving grace is that she's a knitter. Take up knitting everybody because that (laughs) saves her life.
0: Whatever she is making as a babysitter, she does not get paid enough <laughs> because she does really a so good true. job protecting those kids more than any of the other girls in this movie, I think, would have. I don't I, I have a feeling they wouldn't have put in as much effort.
2: That's an interesting angle. Like maybe their punishment is not their interest in sex. It's their disinterest in their job as caretakers. That's the
1: real criticism we're facing well, here. The brunette friend, what's the first thing she do? Pawns off little Kyle Richards on Lori so she can go get laid with her boyfriend that's punished. So maybe and this then is what all. Happens. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Maybe
2: this is really a treatise on capitalism and how you should be doing the job you're paid for. And that <laughs> is what keeps us all moving along.
0: Well, you know what's interesting? If we want to get really psychologically deep on this one, maybe Michael Myers saw himself in that six-year-old little boy and saw him getting abandoned by the person who was responsible for taking care of him.
2: I do think there's a reason we see that boy in that situation first. Again, this is an unusual film especially in light of more contemporary movies, the idea that your cold open is a full origin story reveal is pretty unique. Normally your cold open is, oh, we're already in the sanitarium and oh, Michael's acting up again. And then it would be like revealed slowly. And we'd find out somewhere in act two, well, when he was a child, whereas this And I think there's a lot of things that are interesting about setting it up that way and been pervasive and prevalent in films after that. And one of the things that set up and Kimberly had actually noted this. So not only are we seeing that first section in a long take and through his eyes and they're cut out uh, like he's this little kid in a mask and then we see him as a man in a mask like he sought out a weird white William Shatner mask to put on. But the idea too of the filming of this, you're so regularly in his Mm -hmm. shoes, like Kim said, that there's something unique there of a character that we already got the full origin story of. Part of our origin that we're getting is, oh, he's just pure evil. But also here, you be him for a minute. Can you just like walk? Can you do the breathing? Can you do the like scanning room to room? And that's such a, Crazy. That first person perspective, I think, is another thing that sort of set this apart and made it resonate in the way that it did. Obviously, not the first film to take on first person perspective, but doing it with this villain that was set up of you're basically the same as, I mean, they refer to it as the boogeyman, right? Like, you're not even like playing a human that you're in the face of. So I always thought that the filming of it and doing so much intentional perspective from Michael's viewpoint.
1: was really interesting it makes the audience complicit too it makes it so much more complex because you can't go oh it's you know it's this other i mean he's othered in the narrative but from the structure of this film we start the movie with him we're in his perspective the most i mean laurie is our final girl but michael is our main character and you watch in great detail And sometimes through the eyes of that mask with his breathing in your head as he kills each and every one of these people.
2: And do you feel like for me, I thought that those moments, I know, I think Pauline Kale, of course, had like huge issues with being put in that perspective. But I actually found that it secured my idea of him as almost inhuman in in being driven by evil, because seeing through his eyes and what he was seeing, I was like, there's nothing here, if I was you, that I would be compelled to the actions that you are. And therefore, I have to ascertain that you are no longer a human, or if you ever were, there's no one who would be looking at this and having these reactions
1: except for this point of evil. That's a fascinating way to spin that because I hadn't actually even gone there. I would love to do some more reading on that. I like to think that's the correct answer. As I was watching the murder scenes last night when I rewatched this, I immediately to jump to an unrelated, I was drawing some comparisons to, I've been watching a lot of, first I'm watching a lot of Brian De Palma films. And I was thinking about some of those murder scenes and these characters who didn't necessarily fight. And I know I was watching it going, at least these women are fighting. At least they're trying. They're more active victims than some of the other films I've been kind of concurrently watching. But I would love to read more criticism, hear more opinions to how people think about. That use of perspective, because I could see it going so many different ways. And I know, as someone who's watched it repeatedly and a filmy person, I don't know if I necessarily go there first.
0: Yeah, I would say, in sort of connection to what I was saying about the film being very tame, they definitely do put up a fight. But I think a lot of these murders end too quickly to be realistic for me, especially Annie. That one really surprised me. I was like, you can't kill somebody that quickly, at least not without a lot more blood than that. If he really was slitting her throat in that car, that just doesn't make sense to me. And pretty much everyone, aside from, you know, the drawn out battle with Lori, everyone pretty much dies instantly, no matter how they're killed. It didn't feel realistic. It felt a little bit disconnected for me because of that.
2: I'm a big fan of Samantha's love of crime and her
1: desire for more blood. I These love are- that it's Samantha going, we need more blood. What is <laughs> a <your>
0: movie, you <laughs> no, guys. It it's exciting revelations.
1: Sense. I love it.
2: No, I'm with you. And I do think it's the kind of thing, either if they'd had more budget Those are the moments that cost the most. There's either going to be stunt elements with them, practical effects if you're having blood. There's all sorts of things that I just say that like with my producer hat on of, yeah, they probably would have liked to have gotten either more coverage or spent more time with that. But those are the spendier parts of the shoot. But it does lend it this thing where it's almost, I mean, it's not like, oh, what a quaint twee movie but if you do go back the feeling of oh this is a slasher movie because we start with a killing and we're following this girl and all this there's such a perverse joy now that comes across in a lot of killings and slasher movies and then you're the halloween franchise did this themselves you're now like having to constantly re-up how brutal the kill is how bloody Mm -hmm. how absurd like the trajectory of a knife like there's so many things now that you can't just like kill someone and have that be horrifying. But I wonder when this came out and you had a much smaller horror presence of this and it was the start of it. If just that would have, oh God, like that. Oh, they, he was in the car. Like, cause I remember when I first saw that being very young and having that be like, oh no. And then you are like, I'm definitely checking my backseat from now on for the rest of
1: my life. Who knows who's going to be back there and what they're going to have in their hands. Great joy of watching horror films with a big audience. Don't go in there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think you make a fantastic point, Drea. I wonder if I or maybe everyone these days is desensitized to a lot of this very basic killing horror type of film. I wasn't necessarily as disappointed about the blood, as disappointed as I was about the timing and the pacing of the murders. I just, in my head, I'm sitting here knowing about listening to all these true crime podcasts, watching all these other more realistic by comparison horror movies, and thinking to myself, it takes way longer for someone to die under those circumstances. I wasn't necessarily begging for more blood, you guys. I'm not a bloodthirsty (laughs) individual. But but yeah, I was more thinking of realistic anatomy.
2: No, that um, makes sense. And I wonder too, if who knows, I don't talk to John Carpenter for obvious reasons, but there might've been some idea of removing a little believability from it, like keeping it either feeling a little theatrical, a little staged to tie in with this concept of a pure evil human. That's no longer human. You know, like there's enough things that are both very grounded in reality, like the mundaneness of babysitting Mm -hmm. and How you have living house to house and having neighbors. A lot of that feels very realistic. And then there are these things that are sort of not so much. One of the things I love about this script is that it was written in 10 days. Big fan of that. Big fan of that energy. So who knows, maybe they had had a little longer. They might have worked out and workshopped how believable they wanted these kills. But a detail that I always appreciated was even if we don't think of these kills as being the sort of dynamic, bloody, or realistic things we see a lot, the structure of them and how often they're popping up is based on the, again, the producer who kind of left it in the hands of Carpenter and Hill, but apparently told them he wanted it structured like a radio play so that there was like a scare every 10 minutes or so. And if you rewatch it, and again, that's that kind of thing that filters down, like when you see horror movies now, or even, you know, we just talked about the Universal Monsters and it was a different structure then. the idea of how much bang for your buck, how much scare for your buck you're getting, even if it's not a kill every 10 minutes. And it's certainly not in this one, but it's that idea of like, oh, did I just see Michael outside the school? Did I, you know, like you're getting this constant threat and that idea of something in the late 70s being influenced by an older producer who is referencing radio plays is a fascinating one to me that's
1: not a narrative trajectory we're getting now with things i think this sensitization really does go into it at some level watching it from a 2021 perspective we now see characters introduced into these films to be butchered i mean the last i i Got the name of the title now. I saw the Halloween Kills is the most recent. I saw the most recent one before that. So Jamie Lee Curtis's return. You had in that one, you had podcasters who were introduced literally to suffer a very bloody death at the hands of Michael in a bathroom. We have much bigger cats because we have these supernatural killers who can, I was just saying to someone last night as I was watching this, you know, in the later films, he just crushes people's skulls in his hand. The strength is so big. There's so much. I think audiences want more. They want more blood. They want more action. The scares that you talked about are so ramped up. This one I love because of, maybe it's the radio comparison, the more subtle nature of it, because he shows that you don't necessarily have to lean on the murders. You don't have to lean on the gore. It can be a haunted house. Half of the beginning is a cat and mouse game between Michael and Lori. You see Michael outside the school. You see Michael driving past the little boy. That scene outside when Michael's hiding in the bushes and then disappears, he's like a ghost. And you can envision a young director, young producing team and a young cast making this movie on the streets of Pasadena. Jamie Lee Curtis was not a name when she made this film. I was reading reviews. She's mentioned a couple of times Donald Pleasence's name is above the title. It shocked me last night when I thought about it because it's do we think of that as his movie? No, really, we don't. We think of this as Jamie Lee Curtis's movie. There's so much that time has changed the perspective of. And I think it's fascinating to look at this from a 1978 perspective.
0: Dare I say that that makes me want to rewatch this? (laughs) I know (laughs) the shock, the shock and awe from that statement. But I think that's a really good point. I would say that because 1978 is already out of my wheelhouse, I'm more likely to compare it to modern horror than I am to universal horror, so I think that's part of why I'm so critical of it. And we have to talk about Donald Pleasance. We have to talk about this because when I saw his name above the title, do you guys want to know what my first thought was? It was, oh my god, Michael Myers (laughs) of all people is Donald Pleasance Michael Myers, and I didn't (laughs) know. As someone who's had to do
2: contract negotiations with actors, so they wanted one sort of recognizable name and you need a presence with a little gravitas with a little like familiarity, but it's okay if it's the, oh, that's that guy. I know that guy. Anyway, and then that would come with A, you get the biggest paycheck if you're Donald Pleasants, B, you're guaranteed your name above the title because that's like one of the free things that you can give. But it is really hilarious looking back now, especially with the cultural roots that Halloween has put down. The idea that you would need the guy that played Dr. Loomis as your star to open it. But yeah, those are the fun trickeries that you get done. My favorite, I would love for us to talk about the casting in general. My favorite casting of all of it is Nick Castle, who played Michael Myers in the form, in the suit with the mask and like just walking around. And Nick Castle, of course, was friends with Carpenter because they went to USC together and then eventually directed himself The Last Starfighter, The Boy Who Could Fly, Dennis the Menace, Major Pain. He became like this huge director. But the idea that this guy who directed all of these things later on was like, oh, yeah, my friend needs me to just wander around in the suit because I'm like big enough. Love and he's, he, he he said his instructions from Carpenter when he, he, the only time he gave him anything was like, oh no, I just need you to walk from there to there. Don't act. <laughs> Which if you look at it is the perfect performance cue for Michael Myers. You're but menacing yeah. enough. Yeah. What did you guys think of the casting in general? Like obviously
1: some standout one in particular. Like I said, I'm not great with the history, but I know I've done some superficial looks. There's so many opinions out there that people dive into with the casting of who plays Michael in any given film. There's discussions about, you know, who they use. And I've heard that with Jason too. I think, oh, so-and-so plays Jason or Michael in this film. And that means this, but this Michael means something different. I love it in this film because I mean, he's big and he's menacing, but to me, there's still a realism to it. I mean, he pops up but, you know, a knitting needle to the neck, you know, if she hits it wrong, oh, it could have, you know, there's always this thought for me of, oh, he's popping back, but how much of these are kill hits? You know, it's you can go, ooh, is it supernatural or oh, is she just a scotch unlucky with where she's hitting him? There's still some realism to the plot as opposed to how big and how massive these guys get later on. I think Jamie Lee Curtis speaks for herself. It's wild to watch it and think about at that point, she isn't really mentioned in the reviews. The one review I saw that mentioned her had to include that she was Tony Curtis and Janet Lee's daughter. She had appeared in maybe a, I believe there was a Columbo before this where she plays a waitress. And one of the articles I read had mentioned she was getting ready to do Operation Petticoat, a TV series she moved on to later in the 70s. So she's very much at the beginning of her career. And with the presence that she has now and the cultural importance that she holds, to think that it's introducing Jamie Lee Curtis, it's wild to watch and think about. And that is really kind of what struck me. It's like she's this good right out. And she really creates this film. I'm sure there were were final girls before this, but Lori's really the ultimate final girl that so many people think about. She holds a lot on her shoulders as a 19-year-old first-time actress, really. She does too, especially
2: because the stunt casting element of it. What I always found funny about this was that apparently Carpenters, he wanted Anne Lockhart, June Lockhart's daughter, to play Yeah, to play Lori. Which is kind of funny to me. And that they were always just very upfront of, yeah, I mean, we're not going to have the star of Psycho's daughter not in our movie. Like that's built in marketing. And the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis had the skill set to back it up and then make a career for herself. But yeah, what about you, Samantha?
0: As far as Jamie Lee Curtis goes, I will say my experience with her is somewhat limited. I wasn't going into this completely blind because I actually a month or two ago saw my girl for the first time. So young Jamie Lee Curtis or young-ish, I guess that's probably a difference of about 20 years now that I think about it, but I didn't really see a difference. Um, So I saw a little bit of young-ish Jamie Lee Curtis before. So to me, it's amazing going into this as such a golden age classic hollywood fan watching one of her movies i am completely disconnected from either tony curtis or janet lee she doesn't remind me of either one of them by any means sometimes i'll see a picture of her that gives me janet lee vibes but for the most part she's completely her own person not just in her physical appearance but in her acting performance as well. I think it's quite possible to say, I mean, I love both of them. I love Janet and Tony, but her acting style is much more realistic than either of them Mm -hmm. dared to be. And I think that's just because of the time. But she's perfect for this film. She really is. I totally identify with her. It's definitely not one of those movies sort of touching on what Kim was saying earlier. It's not one of those movies where you're yelling at her, don't go downstairs, or she's doing all the right things. And that's what I love to see in a horror movie. I really loved her casting. We're going to talk about Donald Pleasance. We cannot talk about Donald Pleasants'. Get into casting. it! Get into it. It's funny because I saw many, many names for all of the people they considered for the big name in their film. And the one that stood out to me the most was Christopher Lee. He said that turning this down was the biggest regret of his career just because it wasn't enough of a paycheck. And I would have loved to see Christopher Lee in this. I think he would have improved it immensely not that, you know, Donald Pleasance doesn't give a good performance. It's just sort of what we were talking about. I'm really latching on to the theory that Dr. Loomis is somehow the evil one in this situation. All of this going on is because he deems Michael Myers as evil as a six-year-old child. I could see Christopher Lee being that type of character to do that much more than Donald Pleasance. So in my head, I want him in the cast to fit my own narrative. And just because I love Christopher Lee.
1: I hadn't looked at the shortlisting cast, but thinking about it, that would have been a completely different movie with Christopher Lee in there. With Donald Pleasant, he's a little bumbling. He doesn't know what's going on. It very much places the power in Michael's hands. You get Christopher Lee in there, suddenly he's an evil scientist who probably, you know, brainwashed this child. And Christopher Lee's just as much of a villain when you can probably look past Donald Pleasence as a villain a little bit, Blofeld excluded.
0: It would have really bumped up that reading. And my second choice, again, it was a very long shortlist. I, I know Kim, you said you didn't see it, but my second choice from the shortlist would have been Lawrence Olivier because- I think given the right performance, we could have gotten Ten. the exact same effect.
1: Evil. Again, he would have been evil. It would have been so fun. Yeah, I feel pretty sure production
2: would have been happy to have Lawrence Olivier as well. I feel like they would have been very fine with his name on top of this title.
0: Who doesn't want Lawrence Olivier in their film.
2: Yeah, so true. I really love that your Dr. Loomis casting is entirely around supporting your own theories on Dr. Loomis is <laughs> the true villain. I appreciate that. Kudos to you. Yeah, I think this is a strong cast. I also love the detail for Jamie Lee Curtis saying, because I think of her so much as Laurie Strode. And she does. One of the things she's so good at in this, and that it's very difficult, she exudes an intelligence. She has an awareness very about much. her. You're like, oh, this is someone who is smart and has a lot going on right now. Not everyone can convey that. Even many intelligent actors are not capable of conveying that in such a way. And I think she does, which makes it even funnier that her hesitance at first with even auditioning was she related so much more to the cheerleaders because she was a cheerleader and she had a longtime boyfriend and all this stuff. And see, you know, women, they contain multitudes. You can be the very shrewd cheerleader and not get killed, you know? (laughs) It's a what an exciting twist. I definitely before we end up things mm-hmm. I'd love to talk a little more about some of the technical elements of this because it's this funny contradiction you know you have a script that was famously written in like 10 days and then even more famously one of the parts of this movie that's most applauded is the score the carpenter did himself in 3 days for anyone listening I cannot 3 days to score an entire feature is bonkers. So please, please know that. And does have this sort of keyboard Casio simplicity, yet it created one of the most lasting, but it's not even like the full song. It's haunting, but it's that idea of with Halloween, with the music, when you think of, it's not just setting up a time and place. It is Michael Myers music. And that's something else that's continued on in other movies of giving your villain a particular song and that that comes with them, be it a shark, be it whatever, that primary score, that little musical theme that tells you Michael Myers, like it is so like, it's got that relentlessness. It's got the fear. It's also for the equipment that it's built on. Shockingly, 80s so futuristic for the time that it was made. Would you guys agree? Like, I think Samantha even pointed out the score as being something she stood out to her.
0: I don't often really latch on to scores, but I definitely was blown away by the score of this film. And and I was especially surprised that Carpenter was the one to do the score because usually when a score stands out in a film, that composer goes down in history. Just look at Bernard Herman. That's my ideal example. So it's so funny that Carpenter definitely isn't known to people for his score. Aside from apparently Donald Pleasance's daughter, <laughs> who is the reason why he did this film because his daughter loved the score of his previous film so much. But But yeah, this was such a good score. And then the other thing that I read about related to the score was that he, Carpenter did a screening of this film without the score. And everyone hated it. They're like, oh, this is boring. This is not great. The score absolutely, without a doubt, adds to the suspense and the intrigue of this movie. I think it's one of the things, if not the thing, I love the most about it.
1: I keep harkening back to it, but it's such a testament to the creativity. You don't need a big budget shoot. You don't need a big crew. You can, with innovation, they created something lasting that has defined tour and lasted in the last 50 years. I mean, like you said, creating that score himself over three days. I mean, looking at Carpenter's filmography, this was what his third feature length film. And he was 30 years old, just coming out of the gate. And they did so much. I wanted to twist this real quick back to there was something I thought of. I love the use of nostalgia and the awareness that he has injected throughout this film. And it was kind of hit me in the face when I was looking at the reviews this morning. I mean, of course, we have the kids watching The Thing from Another World, which Carpenter would go on to remake in a couple of years after that. You have the 1950s sci fi, but then the Hitchcockian elements in there too. I mean, Sam Loomis psycho. It's, yeah, you know, using that you have Janet Lee and there is, you know, remind in some of those moments, especially early on, it's very Hitchcockian suspense and we're combining Hitchcockian suspense with what slashers would turn into. And it's such a smart, savvy film. And he's so in touch with The horror and the nostalgia of what came before him. I know I absolutely love that, especially on this viewing.
2: Yeah, he's in the sort of first breed of filmmakers who are not just film lovers, but went to film school. Like I mentioned, Mm -hmm. he went to the University of Southern California. And I think that there's always people who are making films or writing things like you're taking in like what you've enjoyed and it's coming out in your own work in interesting ways. But I think that for him, you can definitely see more of like a, in film school, they teach a lot of those things of there's certainly, there's so much of this that to me has like a Hitchcock influence from like the point of perspective that we were talking about earlier, the point of unique framing to give us like tensions. Like, I mean, I would still say Rear Window to me has moments that are more horror, tension, success than so many genre films that I've seen. And so you get that idea of pacing and of film awareness. I like couching that in the idea of nostalgia because it's making a film that could seem sort of reminiscent of previous films. From our standpoint, when the film we're discussing is already old, like there's so many layers to that that are really interesting.
0: I think it's a really fascinating juxtaposition of old and new horror And as I mentioned earlier, I feel like I was wrong in trying to compare this to new horror. I think I should have been comparing it more to classic horror that we know. And Samantha, we know you are
2: traveling through time and space. It is hard for you to remember which way is
0: up. I get it. It's true. And. Honestly, through this discussion, it has given me much more of an appreciation for the film than I had after watching it. I remember texting my sister as I was watching it. And with 10 minutes left, I was like, I don't like this. movie. (laughs) I don't like this movie at all. But through this discussion, I'm starting to see the things that I do like about it. And I would definitely watch it again. I already feel like I need to give it another try. And I watched it this morning. So, but there are definitely things that built upon it and that it built upon that I think are really fascinating and worth pointing out. And I, I understand why it's one of the more popular films of the genre.
2: I would recommend the next time you watch it, you choose an evening setting as well. That typically helps out with horror films. That's
0: true. Maybe, That's maybe, true.
2: maybe set up to creep yourself out, like sit alone in a big, in your living
1: room. Open the shades, have it dark outside. Who knows? I watched The Exorcist in the middle of the day in a crowded dorm room and did not get the horror at all. One of the scariest movies of all time. And I was watching this going, wow, this is overrated. So it all depends on the environment. I second Ray on that. Yeah, I think the morning view tends to give the same energy as watching something on an
2: airplane.
0: Don't get me started on The Exorcist, you guys. <laughs> oh, no.
2: Oh, no. Well, then I'll quickly veer away. The last thing I wanted to touch on in the same realm of the technical categories, this movie is such a funny intersection of you know low budget, quick setup, like the quick writing. And the, most of the actors were wearing their own clothes. Jamie Lee Curtis, I think it was $100 from JCPenney is what they spent total on what she was wearing. And every penny shows. <laughs> but with all of that, the, of course- Reverse side of it is they shot for 20 days, which is a very short shoot, but it's still longer than a lot of independents are shooting now. Again, 20 days, very short. But for like the locations and everything, I'm like, oh, they spread this out well. And the other thing that I find a fascinating juxtaposition that ties back to, in some ways, to some of the perspective. This is one of the first films that was so enormously shot on SETICAM. We're again so used to seeing that, but Having the kind of immediacy that the Steadicam perspective brings like to the contemporary 1978 audience would be so crazy. The idea of just like so breezily floating in and out of those houses, following those characters in that kind of way, you know, especially with horror films, you get a lot of like whip pans before then, or a lot of dolly shot, a lot of things that they give you that sort of theatrical setup. Whereas the Steadicam gives you, you are in the room. This is in real time. And it's also, was such an investment to me? It's another indicator of, oh, those are film school guys who love Mm -hmm. like gear and new things. But it's also, it pays off in this thing of like, oh, if you're going to spend money, that's where you spend money. You get these houses, like they shot in like Pasadena, which was supposed to look like the Midwest. (laughs) Sure. It sort of does, but. You know, you get the houses because you need that neighborhood feel. You need to be moving in and out of them. And then you put it in the Steadicam. And I think it was like a really smart way to figure out where they're going to be putting that money.
1: I saw an interview with Carpenter. It was while they were shooting. And I think the Los Angeles Times, they made it sound like the Steadicam was what brand brand new. I think they said it had won like an Oscar as an innovation the previous year. So this is really cutting edge.
0: I agree if you have to spend your money somewhere that's definitely the place to spend your money because I think if this were like a shaky cam footage movie or a theatrically shot movie it wouldn't hit the same we obviously have learned a lot because the money is going to steady cams and Donald Pleasants and none to actually making it look like fall there's fall leaves on the ground but the trees are fully green
2: they apparently can I just add this is one of my favorite details They just had a finite amount of fake fall leaves and they brought it around location to location, the same leaves to be leaving like on different houses, which like, yeah, we have $3. We're not putting any in the trees but well, we're going to recycle the same three bags of... It makes me
1: laugh. See, I've heard a rumor Priorities. and I don't... is. I feel like I've seen somewhere that there's a couple shots where you can see palm trees like right off to... Eagle-eyed viewers can spot palm trees like the next block over or something. Yeah, I've heard that as well at the
2: end. I haven't spotted them myself because I'm not petty. I'm not looking for things like that, you know? I'm really taking in the story. So I feel like this is a good... Place to wrap up and get some final thoughts. It's probably pretty clear for me. I think that Halloween 1978 is certainly in many canons, but definitely in the horror canon. I think this set up so many things that would influence genre filmmakers for decades to come. And the fact that it ended up launching its own franchise, which became a thing as well, is also fascinating. I've watched pretty much every Halloween that's come out. And I actually will say, I really liked the 2018 David Gordon Green Halloween that is sort of a reset because Mm -hmm. it's set up as if it's meant to be the second movie. If you skip everything else, you're fine. If you watch the original in that one, I really liked that for what it was doing for Laurie's character 30 years later or whatever. I found it very interesting. So this would be a, a recommend to me to those three people out there who have not yet seen it or possible time travelers themselves.
1: How about you guys? What are some closing thoughts? I have to echo right with what you said. And I say this as someone who traditionally has not liked slasher films. This is actually one that I really love. I I can't echo enough what we've already said. It's groundbreaking in terms of what they were doing at the time, the effects that it would have for film and genre after the fact there's just so much here. And if you like horror, if this at all intrigues you, take a look because I think I'm squeamish around slasher films and I love this one. I gave the 2018 film a good review as well. It got a little bit of heat, but I actually really enjoyed that one.
2: What about you, Miss More Crime, More Blood?
0: Oh gosh, I would say my opinion of this film has definitely changed as we've discussed it. It's gone from completely unfavorable to slightly favorable. I don't know if I would wholeheartedly recommend it compared to some of my favorite horror films. But as I mentioned before, I think I'm due for another rewatch already and maybe it will become more favorable. Who knows?
2: I applaud you for that. The open mind. I'm keeping open-minded. I'm keeping open-minded. That is how people should approach art. I like that. Thank you, Samantha.
1: That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, you can follow Ticklish Business wherever you get your podcasts. Help us out and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As every other podcast tells you, these reviews do matter. We're available on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, and Podbean, all the podcasty places. We're also flitting around all the social media places as well, but we do spend most of our time on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, Instagram at ticklish biz, and give us a visit over on YouTube, why don't you? We don't have a direct URL yet. If you can give us a subscribe, I believe we're only eight subscribers away from getting a direct URL. Right now, though, you do have to search ticklish business, but you can find your way to us no problem. As always, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We're looking to get 300 subscribers on Patreon so we can start a new ambitious series examining TCM's 52 must-see movies and why they matter. Right now, Ticklish Business subscribers can get early access to all videos before they air on the site. And Kristen and yours truly will be diving into a new series of double features with some goodness coming your way very soon. Samantha Ellis can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Classic Film Geek. Also, check out her Cooking with the Stars posts at Classic Movie Hub and her blog at Musings of a film Drea Clark can be found on Twitter at The Drea Clark, and be sure to check out her contemporary film podcast entitled Maximum Film. As I mentioned, my name is Kim. You can find me most often at Twitter at KPier624. You can also catch up with what I'm watching over at Letterboxd at KPR624 as well. Last but not least, Kristen can be found on Twitter at Journeys in Classic Film. Finally, check out our website at Journeys in classic We're in the middle of spooky season 2021, so we're revisiting some fun horror movies every day. We're also bringing our Marx Brothers tribute to a close this month. Starting in November, I will be looking at four films from the amazing Roy Scheider to celebrate what would have been the actor's 89th birthday. And you know what November also means, kids? November. We'll be back with a new episode here soon. Till then.